We are in the study of the gospel according to John. Uh, We'll be there this morning, and we'll be in John chapter 5, verses 30 through 40. I know the bulletin says through 47, um, but uh, I decided after just some more study this week uh, that I was going to stop in verse 40 and really uh, focus in on these 10 verses, because either... Uh, there would have been a really long sermon or it would have been a kind of shallow sermon uh, because I wouldn't have felt as if I would have been able to do justice to the text that we have before us. Pastor Brandon will pick up in verse 41 uh, next week. But today we're going to look at verses 30 through 40 as we're walking through the gospel according to John. I'll be preaching from the ESV. Uh, I encourage you to turn there with me. You need help, uh, ask somebody besides you. Don't be afraid or ashamed to do that. Uh, we also have some copies. Actually, there's one copy of uh, God's Word uh, back on the resource table. If you would like that, uh, it is our gift to you. You can take that uh, as well. But John chapter 5, verse 30, uh, once you have that, if you look up and once I see majority of eyes, we will read and I will pray for us. Brothers and sisters, would you hear the word of God? I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Let us pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the ways that you have spoken and ministered to us already through the gathering of the saints this morning. Father, I pray that during this time that we get to sit under the authority of your word. I pray that we would be instructed, we would be encouraged, we would be challenged in the ways that fit us all. I pray that those that may not know you today would be drawn to the throne of mercy through the proclamation of Jesus Christ through his words here in John chapter 5. And so, Father, uh, we ask that you would work in us today, that each person here would leave different than they walked in. Father, we ask what we know not you would teach us and what we are not you would make us and what we have not you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. 
So today, we continue to study this section of John chapter 5, where Jesus is personally proclaiming his deity himself. If you recall, he has just healed the man at Bethesda, uh, the man that had been disabled for about 38 years, we read. And because of this, uh, he is now being accused. He's being cornered. Uh, He has people that are in high opposition. He does it on the Sabbath, which draws some very negative attention. Uh, And the confrontation that Jesus is faced with is not an easy one. As we looked a couple of weeks back, we looked at verses 17 through 24, and we saw that the Jewish leaders confronted Jesus. Jesus did not attempt to de-escalate the situation. Instead, he spoke directly to the fact that everything he did and everything he does is based on the reality that he himself is God. Uh, Then last week, we looked at verses 25 through 29, where Jesus speaks of the present reality of salvation. He said, I am giving new life now. And it's to those that hear his voice, that obey him, and then would come to him in repentance and follow him as Lord. And then he says that that reality, the reality of salvation now, then leads to an eternal promise. There was life eternal, that those that have faith in him would be raised to life. However, we were also reminded of the tragic reality that those who fail to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord will face the resurrection of eternal judgment. They will face judgment forever. In the section before us today, we continue this discourse that Jesus started back in verse 17. The words that enraged his hearers so much to the point that they wanted to kill him. They, they are angry at what Jesus is saying. If you recall verse 18, you can look there. We read, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, remember, they were angry about that, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So it's important to recall here that Jesus is not shying away from the hostility aimed at him. Jesus is not running for cover here. He's not trying to mitigate the situation or appease his accusers. Instead, we see Jesus' steadfast declaration of divinity after the threat of death has been mentioned. Now, up to this point, Jesus' own testimony has been the focus of his declaration. But here in verses 30 through 40, Jesus invokes four witnesses to testify to the reality that he is indeed God. Here are the four, if you want to write these down as we begin to look. First, he calls on God the Father. God the Father. Second, he calls on John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Third, he speaks of his own miraculous works, his own works that he has done. And then fourth, we will see him call to the stand the Old Testament scriptures. 
the Old Testament scriptures. Now, I want you to picture a courtroom where someone is on trial for a crime. And as the trial proceeds, the defense calls witnesses to then further corroborate the testimony that is given thus far, that has been said. They're they're calling to the stand. They're saying, okay, I have said this about myself. Now, here are my witnesses. That is essentially what is happening here. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, this is essentially a summary of verses 19 through 29. Uh, He's essentially saying that in reiterating the fact that everything he does is come in complete harmony with God the Father. He does not seek his own will. He's not trying to do his own thing. He's He's not on a rogue mission, but rather he does everything in accordance to the will of the Father. And that has always been the message and will always be the message of Jesus Christ. And the reason because of this is because of the perfect unity we see in the triune God. There's perfect unity within the Trinity. And then in verse 31, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, here we must stop and make sure we don't fall into wrong interpretation of this verse. Uh, At first, read without a proper pause and understanding of what is happening here. Uh, It could be read to think that Jesus is saying that his own words are aren't true, Uh, that his testimony that he is saying, well, that's not true, and he must add in something else. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. According to Mosaic law, testimony must be confirmed by two or more people. Uh, Deuteronomy 17.6 tells us this. It says, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person should not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Uh, Again, in Deuteronomy 19.15. Now, remember, this is all Old Testament law here. It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, for any wrongdoing in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So what Jesus is doing here is uh, quite tactful. He's actually keeping in tune with the law of his accusers. The law that they upheld, the law that they said was right, was above the law of Christ even. He's saying, okay, well, since this is your platform, let me present my case here. He's saying, I'm going to bring in witnesses. I'm going to bring in witnesses that will then affirm the claims that I have already made of myself. Uh, J.C. Ryle is helpful here as he comments on this verse by saying, I quote, our Lord knew that in any disputed question, a man's assertions in his own favor are worth little or nothing. That's the human mind, right? Usually when someone 
uh, is accused of something, when they say, well, I didn't do it, or I am this, or I am not this, it, it amounts to something, but it's not always as much as one would like to believe. J.C. Ryle goes on to say, he tells the Jews that he did not want them to believe him merely because he said he was the Son of God. He would show them that he had other witnesses. And these witnesses he next proceeds to bring forward. Jesus is now calling the witnesses to the stand to affirm that he, the claims that he has made, that he is God, that, that he is divine, that he is the God-man sent to seek and save the lost. He is the Messiah that the Jews have been looking for. And here he stands before them. So he starts here in verse 32 and says, there is another who bears witness about me. Look at that, right? Bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So Jesus starts off here essentially saying that God the Father himself is the one who constantly bears truthful witness about him. Since it's God, this is present tense. This is currently taking place here. God is also the one who provided other witnesses to Jesus. He is the author and originator of all who bear witness to Jesus Christ. It was his idea Notice the intimacy here between God the Son and God the Father as well. He says, I know, I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. I mean, what great relational confidence displayed here. Do you have anyone in your life where you, you just can say, like, I, I know whatever they speak about me is going to be the truth about me. They're going to represent my character well, we all wish and hope to have those. Uh, we would all hope that our spouses, if we have them, or our friends or family would be able to make that testimony. But here we see some perfection in the triune relationship that reminds us that there's no tension between the Trinity. There's only perfect unity here. Then Jesus points to the witness of John the Baptist. Look at verses 33 through 35. He says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Verse 35, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his Light. So now Jesus calls the testimony of John the Baptist to the stand. He calls him to the stand and he reminds his listener that they sent for John. Now, what this means is that they went to John. Uh, there was a time when John the Baptist was highly regarded, uh, he was acknowledged as a prophet. They would go to John the Baptist. They would listen to John the Baptist. If you recall, he had uh, large crowds that would follow him. He was a highly regarded in his time. 
If you recall, in the first chapter of John's gospel, John the Baptist proclaims Jesus Christ as the Messiah in verse 29 of chapter 1, where he says to the Jews, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, he's, Jesus is walking by, and he, he points him out. He says, There he is. That's the one. That's the Messiah That's the one who has come to save. I mean, this would be like someone sitting in the courtroom and pointing their finger and saying, it's him. That's the one. That is indeed the one who did it. John the Baptist clearly bore witness to the true identity of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 34, Jesus says, I'm not saying this because I need it. He says, I'm not saying this because I need to be reminded of this. I'm saying this because you need it. I'm saying this because you need the reminder of what has taken place. Remember, they've heard John the Baptist give this testimony. They are... They've heard this. They've known this. At one time, once again, they respected John the Baptist's testimony. And here Jesus lovingly but straightforwardly says to them, remember who John the Baptist said I was. Don't you recall? And I'm saying this in order that you would remember and recall in order that you would be saved. We read Jesus call John the Baptist a burning and shining lamp. Now, what does a lamp do? lamp shines light. A lamp gives light to the things that need light shined upon. Uh, Maybe you turn on a lamp to uh, navigate your way through a room. Maybe you haven't and you've regretted it later. Uh, Maybe you turn on a lamp to read a book. Maybe you turn on a lamp to to eat a meal. I mean, whatever the case may be, the lamp's job is not to just uh, be admired itself. I've never turned on a lamp and said, man, this is just a beautiful lamp. It's just, look at it, right? Look at it, and it's all of its glory. The lamp is used to shine light on something else, and this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that Jesus, or John the Baptist's testimony, his job, his duty was to be a lamp, to shine light on, illuminate Jesus Christ. He said it wasn't his intention to be the focal point. It wasn't John the Baptist's uh, motivation to draw attention to himself. It was always about pointing people to Jesus. This reminds us of the earlier earlier remarks about John the Baptist in verse 8 of chapter 1, where John says, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. It was always about Jesus. And church, this begs the question, are you bearing witness to the light? What does your life look like? Are you bearing witness to the light of Jesus Christ? I mean, can Jesus call you a burning and shining lamp? Are you demonstrating the qualities that would qualify a statement like that about you? 
I mean, is your testimony, is your life about making Christ known or are drawing attention to, to what you have done in your own kingdom? How are you living? You know, if the latter proves true, let us be quick to ask the Lord to change our hearts, to renew us, to give us a new understanding of who Jesus is, and to remove all distractions that hinder our ability to rightly bear witness to him. May we be a people that continually shine light and illuminate the majesty of Jesus Christ. Next, we see in verse 36, Jesus calls his own miraculous works to testify. His own miraculous works. Look at verse 36. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus is saying, as great as John the Baptist's testimony was, as amazing as it happened to be, my works, the works that I have been assigned to complete, such as the one that I've just done, remember, Jesus has just performed a miracle here. And the miracle hasn't really been brought to the conversation much. They're angry about what Jesus is saying and that he did something on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, hey, what I've been called to do, my works, my, the miracles that I perform, my job, the miracle that I just performed are greater signs that I am sent by God the Father and that I myself am God as well. Here we learn more clearly that the miracles that Jesus performed served two purposes. One, they were acts of compassion. I mean, Jesus loved, he, he cared for those around them. Uh, he healed those out of compassion and care for people. But more importantly, and most importantly here, the main purpose of Christ's miraculous works were to point to his divine power as the God-man who came to seek and save the lost. The first half of John's gospel has been named the book of signs. There are seven miracles here that John, the gospel writer, records, which gives specific testimony to Jesus's claim to deity. A few of them we've already seen, but I'm going to just point them out for us here now. In John 2, we saw the transforming the water into the wine. Uh, the second was the healing of the official son in chapter 4 of John's gospel. The third is the healing that has just taken place here with the lame man beside the pool of Beth Bethesda. Uh, number four, was the, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, is the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we see that take place as a, a miracle. And then later in chapter 6, we remember Jesus walks on water. Uh, he shows his dominion over all things, over all of creation. And then Jesus heals a man born blind in chapter 9. And then seventh miracle is the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11 that we will get to 
at some point. And there Jesus displays his just dominion and his power over sin and death. That he is the one that draws people to life. And each of these miracles have a distinct purpose and speak to specific aspect of the lordship of Christ over each and every thing. And Jesus did many more miracles, we are told. John tells us that as he records these, uh, these, uh, his purpose statement. And he says in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the, the disciples, which are not written in this book. Basically saying, Jesus did a lot more, and I didn't write them all down. The seven that I record are, are just a drop in the bucket here. And he goes on in verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life by his name. He says, this is why I have written this book. This is why I have recorded these miracles. The end goal of the miracles of Christ is so that you may believe that he is God. And then you turn to Jesus Christ as the only source of life. Here, Jesus is reminding his listener that no one can claim that unbelief is due to a lack of evidence. Saying it's not a lack of evidence here. It's not because they don't have enough signs or wonders to, to prove that Jesus Christ was indeed God. Unbelief is due to a hardness of heart. Continued rebellion against God. It's a hardness of heart. The man continues to reject the truth of Christ. It is not Christ's fault. It is not God's fault as people reject him. I mean, Jesus' miracles drew attention from everyone around. I mean, once again, this is why this is taking place here. This is the whole reason why Jesus is essentially on trial. He's healed a man. There's outrage because of it. Those that reject Jesus will not be able to say, I, I have no evidence that Jesus is God. Simon Greenleaf, who lived in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century, was a very educated man. He was a, a well-educated, highly influential man, uh, so much that he was one of the founders of the prestigious Harvard Law School. And Greenleaf, initially, he set out to use his four laws of evidence to try to disprove the claims of Christ. He said, I believe that I can use my trusted uh, worldly philosophies to disprove Christ. What happened, though, was upon further research and upon the work of the Holy Spirit through his life, he was converted in his studies and became a Christian later on. And he's quoted as saying, a person who rejects Christ may choose to say that I do not accept it. He may not choose to say there is not enough evidence. 
There's plenty. There's more than enough in Scripture that would point to the reality that Jesus himself is God. If you're an unbeliever that's here with us today, my prayer is that you too would see the truth of the Jesus of Scripture, that you would see the truth of his word. I pray that you come to believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died for your sins, that you can then be forgiven and live with life eternal. So now Jesus has brought to mind John the Baptist. He's brought to mind his miracles as these two credible witnesses to the claims he is making that he himself is God. And then he goes on to call another witness to the sand. Look at verses 37 and 38. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now listen, this is a very provocative statement for this crowd. I mean, this is something that would have definitely angered his audience here. He tells them here that God the Father has borne witness about him, and since they don't believe him, they don't believe God. and They don't know God at all. Now remember, this group is one that just... Uh, prides itself in their piety, their ability to, to know God and then in, invoke and instill laws about God to others. They say that they can know the scriptures better than anyone. I mean, that's what they did as a profession. And here is this man, this carpenter, this this man from Nazareth that's standing in front of them saying, hey, you don't know God at all. You don't know the first thing about God. The structure of this section points to the fact that this is the main issue at hand. They fail to rightly know God. Jesus says, especially, his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Essentially, what are you saying here is that you've not heard his voice because you do not hear my voice. You do not see his form because you do not see my form as God. You don't understand these things because you are rejecting the truth that I am Jesus Christ. If you remember Colossians 1.15, Paul reminds the Colossians, he says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I mean, it's simply put, right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Therefore, if you want to see God, you must see Jesus. There is no other option. I spoke of this a few weeks ago and made the point that any religion 
or any school of thought that removes the deity of Jesus Christ is useless and leads to death. It's pointless. It's worthless. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Church, that was true then and it is true now. Nothing has changed nor ever will change. That is the facts of Scripture. This is the reality that Jesus speaks of and the reality that we must speak of as well if we are to be true followers of him. We must not offer substitutes or entertain false teaching that leads people to eternal destruction. We must be people that lovingly and boldly proclaim the truth that Jesus is God every chance we get, refuting those who disagree. And I know it's difficult. I know there's social environments, there's different things that you find yourself in that, man, if you were to speak up about the truth of Christ, guess what? Things would get awkward. But let me remind you of the awkwardness of this situation. Let me remind you of the awkwardness of Paul's presentations, Peter's preaching in Scripture, the martyrs that have gone before us, the the awkwardness there. Brothers and sisters, we have not seen persecution. Let us be people that stand on the truth, the reality of who Christ is. Proclaiming, no matter where we are, middle school, high school, college, workforce, neighborhood, be people that lovingly, with gentleness, let our speech be seasoned with salt. We don't do this arrogantly or out of hate for others. We do it out of love for them, that we remind them that there is one truth, and that truth is found in Jesus. Lastly, Jesus calls the Old Testament scriptures here to the stand. He says, it's, this is a, a witness to all that I have proclaimed. Look at verses 39 and 40. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So here we see that even though these religious leaders, these these Jews here, they they thought that they had the scriptures intact. They, They thought that they had a right understanding of God's word, the scriptures that had been given to them at this point. They actually, Jesus says, they have no idea what the scriptures teach. And if they did, that they would have seen that the the central focus of all the scripture from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus Christ himself. That's it. It is all about Christ. Are there other truths? Are there other things that we learn, the glory of God, there are many studies of theology, yes and amen, but the focal point of the scriptures is Christ himself. 
what this tells us is that people can study the scriptures. They can know the scriptures all they want. They can quote Bible verses and speak of theological points better than we can, but still have a blind eye to Jesus Christ. They can have a blind eye to the central message of the scriptures that Jesus Christ is Lord, and they can still be left dead in their sins. Um, I heard a story recently, and I can't remember. It was one of our church members. Uh, You can remind me if it was you after service. Uh, But there was a story of uh, someone that they knew that uh, was a, they'd grown up in the church their whole life. Uh, This person went to seminary, went to a Christian uh, undergrad, then went to seminary, uh, then became a, I believe, a professor, maybe uh, a high school Bible teacher, nevertheless taught the Bible for many years. And just recently, a year, two years ago, were they actually converted? Were they actually converted and uh, they were being, I think, baptized uh, the right way as a believer? But all of this time, they, they knew Scripture. They had studied Scripture. They could speak Scripture. And they were unregenerate. They were not regenerated. They were not born again to new life. The, the Scripture had not penetrated their hearts. Maybe that's true for some in here today. Maybe you've been a person that has been knowledgeable, the theological concepts that come from Scripture. Maybe you're someone that maybe you've, you've heard it said before many times, many ways. Maybe you've even done devotions. But maybe the Scriptures, the truth of God's Word has never penetrated your heart the way that would bring true reconciliation between you and God through Christ. I mean, my prayer is that if that is the case for you, that today you would see Christ for who he really is, the Savior, and that you would fully submit yourself to him. There are many preachers and pastors that tragically prove themselves to be false converts as they After many years of pastoring churches or preaching, they walk away from the faith. I would say they never had a faith, true faith to begin with. We see that happen many times. Brothers and sisters, while knowing God's word is essential to the Christian life, if we fail to see Christ as the point of the message, if we fail to put uh, him above ourselves as the main character of God's redemptive story, if we fail to exalt Christ above all things, we will fail to rightly see the word of God as he's intended us to see it. Brothers and sisters, let us always approach God's word with Christ's glory at the forefront of our minds. How do we see Christ? I mean, that should be the the question. How do we see ourselves and our need for a Savior? That's why we take time to confess, as Pastor John communicated so wonderfully earlier. We need to see our depravity. We need to see our sins in, in the right way. 
But then quickly we need to be reminded of the glories of Christ and to know him is to love him. And as we grow in our knowledge of him, Lord willing, we grow in our love for him. And then we are motivated, compelled to share that love with others. That we would then point them to the truth of the reality that there is a Savior who came to seek and save the lost. And all who would call on the name of Christ, who would repent, would believe, turn away, flee from their sins, and run to Christ. He will receive them. So, brothers and sisters, how are you approaching the Scriptures? Or are you even approaching the Scriptures? Have you neglected time in God's Word? It's hard to see Christ in the Scriptures if we fail to look at the Scriptures themselves. Don't be, think, be fooled by thinking that Jesus is saying here that, like, we don't need to study God's Word. It, we don't need to be students of the Scriptures. That is not the message here. The message is simple and plain, and Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, do you want to be equipped for every good work? I know I do. So we must be students of the word. This is how God speaks to us. This is how we know what is true about Christ. The Holy Spirit works in and through the power of God's word that has been delivered to us. Listen, Jesus does not speak audibly to anyone anymore. There are no more prophets speaking on behalf of God. There are no more apostles acting on behalf of God. Hebrews 1 makes this very, very clear. Here's what is said long ago at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's Jesus Christ. That's how we know God, the only access point. So in closing, I ask, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Whose testimony do you trust? Is it the news? Are you looking for your Savior in politics? Guess what? You won't find it. Are you looking for a savior in your wealth and what you can achieve? Guess what? You won't find it there. Are you looking for 
a savior and having the best family. Maybe you're looking for a, a spouse. Maybe it's always the, if I can just get to this, when all along Jesus Christ is right here. So what do you believe? We have four credible witnesses here that affirm that Jesus Christ is God himself. And for you, brothers and sisters, that do believe this testimony, what is your testimony to those around you? How are you living? Are you proclaiming this truth so others will know? Or have you shied away from this responsibility? The question we have to ask is, have we fully submitted our lives to his lordship and entrusted our future to him? It's only when we see Jesus as he truly is will we have the rest that we truly need and have the motivation to make it through these days ahead as we stand on the truth of Christ as his people. Let us pray and ask God for his help. Father, thank you so much that you have given us more than we need to affirm the testimony of Christ. We thank you, God, that you know each and every individual in here. You know how to apply this passage to their heart by the power of your spirit and your spirit alone. We ask that you would do that now. I pray, Father, that you would work in a way that would draw sinners to repentance, that would humble the haughty, and that would help us to see the glories of Christ and Christ alone. Father, may you be glorified in us and use us to proclaim the truths of Scripture to those around us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.